Hi, I'm Bryn Thompson. This is the Coburn Ventures podcast. It's for our clients, for investors, for our community of industry leaders, fellows, and friends. This is a group that loves the craft of investing, studies change, is dedicated to business analysis and leadership, and all that's behind the scenes of that work. I hope you enjoy it. Polly Labar is an author, thinker, collaborator, and journalist. I met her first through Pip as she was working on her book, Mavericks at Work, in 2006, which is a fascinating look into the most original minds in business. And when Polly took part in the very first Sundance gathering for Coburn Ventures, it was Polly's genius that led to a refrain that many of you have heard time and again a guideline of sorts that helped our gatherings become a means to draw out the best in everyone rather than fall back on our heels in the conventional way of doing things. Polly was the first person at Sundance to suggest, you are the program. It was a great fit for a group that we had brought together that was ready for that exact type of experience. We were not there to sit back, but to participate and create. So this conversation will reveal more to you about how deep a thinker and journalist Polly is. Her special ability lies in examining what's happening at the edges to see what might be an indication of future change in business and management. So we dive into what it means to have a company that understands how to bring out the best in their employees, how institutions frame our work experience in sometimes limited and now very outdated ways. She has this great phrase about building organizations where systems and structures go with the grain of humanity. So we'll get into edge cases that take us to real-life examples from China to Sweden and back again. I hope you enjoy it. Polly, you've been an observer and a creator of, of change within companies and outside of companies. And one of the big changes that um, we're observing, and I know you are observing, is the, the move from a single stakeholder model, the idea that shareholder returns are paramount, to multi-stakeholders, where suppliers, customers, employees, and, and many more holistic elements of a business are considered. Um, and you focus in particular on um, employees, and we'll get into that in a minute. But that that is just such a huge mindset shift. Um, and you like to work on the edges so that you can kind of see how, how the, the maverick um, operators are, are formulating in this new world. How on earth do you see this change happening and how is it happening in practice? That's a nice, big, juicy question. <laughs> like to go big. So one, of, one of the questions... I've had on my mind for probably 20, 25 years has been, you know, how do we make the realm of human endeavor fundamentally more creative, more fulfilling, more productive, because it has to be productive and profitable as well. Um, and, and that created this sort of subsidiary question, which is, how do we take these kind of industrial era organizations that the vast majority of people work inside and introduce this element of um, people as whole people, 
right? You yeah. guys talk about humanity and business. And for so long, it's been an oxymoron. I think we're moving into a world where it has to become a tautology, right? That the very humanity of people, that messy, loud, sharp-edged, you know, audacity, ingenuity, curiosity, resourcefulness, eccentricity, artistry, intuition, all of that stuff is actually recognized, valued, and that we build systems and management models and platforms that are on ramps to unleashing that and leveraging that and rewarding that. <laughs> and, and, you know, basically acknowledging that every human being who works has unlimited human potential, you know, a set of gifts and contributions that are just sort of latent inside them. And that it's really the job of organizations and leaders to tap into that and to find a way to, to bring that to the table. Um, so that's a dream, but I do see that happening. And we can get into talking about like in the ways in which this actually uh, materially gets advanced inside some really interesting organizations. I might just talk about like a broader shift. You guys at Coburn are so great at talking about these shifts that are happening in the world, whether it's the yin-yang rebalancing or ESG emerging. And part and parcel of that, even just in this last sort of brutal pandemic year when we've had this multiplex of cataclysmic stuff happening, <laughs> none of it very positive. Um, you know, for the first time, for the first time, we've had this mass recognition that so-called frontline workers are indeed essential, right? Mm -hmm. And that means something specific in the case of the pandemic, but I wanna pull back to this basic fact of work, which is that we've, we've sort of created this two-class system. We've bifurcated the world into talent. You know, you guys work in organizations where we have our high pots, you know, as if there were a group of people who were high potential and a group of people who were not, um, where we have our rank and file and our frontline workers and our wage earners, you know, the people around whom our biggest concerns are turnover and shrinkage, you know, and then we have the talent that we need to develop and grow and create career paths. And I think that is just a corrupt way of thinking about human potential, even human resources that were, as many people I know, it's now cute to say we have a people department instead of human resources, but we've got to make that a lot more than just-, just There's a, Polly, there was a moment in, I think it was like 2001, there was this big storm uh, brewing in New York City. And there was a memo, so I was at UBS at the time, and the memo said, all non-essential employees can blah, blah, blah. You know, managing directors were expected to stay at the helm, you know, non-essential employees. And I remember so many people pissed off so quickly that they were labeled non-essential. Non and it was viewed as almost like a, I think, patriarchy. We're taking care of the people who don't have to be here. Mm -hmm. as, it wasn't from like, oh, let's call them non-essential. That'll piss them off and feel degraded. It wasn't that. It was just a natural, the non-essential, the language just revealed so much. So much. And I think you're right. The caveat is not, oh, the leaders of organizations are perpetrators by using this language. It's not, we're not talking about bad people. We're talking about kind of antiquated and retrograde systems, right? So that's, that's really the issue. Like there's a habit. Even like the captain goes down with the ship 
everyone else goes first. Like there's an orientation that at some level is meant to be compassionate and sympathetic, but the underlying effect is dehumanization. Yeah. Well, Graham well, McCracken often reminds us, you know, new, new language, new logic. Absolutely. And that, that you just said dehumanization, Pip. And, and I think Brene Brown talks about this really beautifully, as do a lot of people, that, you know, the, the dehumanization starts with language, right? So we, so it's not, you know, we have these systems of language and then behaviors and then, you know, everything gets all sort of reified and calcified. Um, so it, we don't just need to change the language. We don't just need to reform the HR department. <laughs> There's a lot more, I think, going on here. Um, and, and I think one of the things that you and I talked about before, Pip, was this notion of sort of basic human dignity. And I love that as a lens because First of all, that's an idea that, you know, has no argument, you know, there's no enemy to that. We all want that. Holly, that's maybe, something can... Holly, maybe I can, uh, Polly, maybe I can inject in the, our working definition of dignity. Please. Because I think people, we use a lot of words. Um, to me, at least, or at least my current working definition, which is always up for reprisal, is dignity is the idea that humans, um, don't have inherent value that's not changeable based on action and that it's equivalent across all humans. Mm -hmm. So if I do something good, that doesn't raise my dignity. If I do something evil, that doesn't lower my dignity. It's like standard. So the worst of the worst has the same as the best of the best. There's no increasing or decreasing. I think our habit is to try to become more valuable to break out of that inherent and separate that, well, I'm more special than you or et cetera, et cetera. Um, honoring the idea that everyone's dignity is the same, this value inherently is, has us look at people very, very differently yeah. and act differently. So it kind of guides. That's how I'm using it. Others might use it differently. So when I hear people are pissed off about capitalism, it's one component is we're not we're not honoring that we all have the same value. We're going around trying to increase our value or decrease someone else's. I love that. It's an unassailable human core and it gives wonderful new light to all of our conversations around diversity and inclusion because uh, we're talking about that in a much broader way than demographic or even psychographic diversity or inclusion. I, I might even put on the table, it'd be really interesting to look at and to ask the question, especially for your clients and in your world, what is design for dignity look like? You know, we, we talk about DFT, design for delight for customers, but what does design for dignity inside an organization look like? And in many ways, that's, that's a question, I haven't used that language specifically, but that's a question I've been chasing um, for quite a long time. And, and the way that I might break it down is, what does it look like when you have an organization where all the systems and structures kind of go with the grain of humanity and all that sort of human irregularity and unpredictability and ingenuity rather than against it? And, um, what does it look like when you 
when your basic uh, drive in an organization is to make everything more creative, more collaborative, more connected mm -hmm. <laughs> than, than the opposite. Um, and so, so we, I've seen this in a lot of organizations and I think I would start with that definition of dignity. Some of the organizations that I would call sort of the most progressive, these edge cases where you know, they're both tackling these societal issues, they're valuing their, uh, the people who work there at the level that we've just been talking about, and, and their level of um, inventiveness and uh, adaptability and resilience is very high. So the results are high as well, because we need that too, right? We, we need this to work. Um, but in many cases, uh, there was a founder, or a leader, or, you know, someone who you know, did have power inside the organization who really put a stake in the ground and said, people are valuable intrinsically, just as you said. So one example um, that's become kind of a darling of, of the world of kind of progressive business circles is Hire, the Chinese white goods manufacturer. It's one of the fastest growing companies in the world. It's um, management models, arguably one of the most radical and progressive in the world. Uh, the CEO there, Zhang Min, is a real student of philosophy as well as kind of management um, uh, thinkers. And he basically looked at Kant and also kind of 2000 year old Chinese texts and said, you know, people are not a means to an end. You know, they are an end in, of, uh, in and of themselves. And what does it look like to design an organization around that kind of thinking? Um, now, that's really highfalutin philosophy, but today, hire is an organization of about 80,000 people, you know, in the manufacturing sector, although they've, 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 they've gone into all kinds of new businesses and internet of things and everything like that. They are, uh, they have, two layers of management only for 80,000 people all over the world. They are slivered into about 4,000 what they call micro enterprises, each of which is like sort of small entrepreneurial units. Even the so-called support functions like design, manufacturing, HR, as we used to know it, are micro enterprises. Um, they all have their own P&Ls. They all get compensated based on value that they create. All of that's totally transparent. In many cases, they can elect and fire their own leaders and on and on and on. So there's this real kind of ownership and entrepreneurial um, support in the organization. And now that's one flavor of an organization. It's a, it's a tough place to work. It's fairly Darwinian. It's very entrepreneurial. Like you don't make money if you don't show up and create value for customers. Polly, how do you start that idea? Polly, how do you think about that Darwinian element? I think there's um even inside of the group of people that are next generation caring about employees, etc. There's a little bit of a pushback towards Darwinianism. We see that at Netflix, they're really ridiculed for what I see as very progressive, advanced, but. Mm -hmm. If you're not adding value, well, you're not going to be there very long. How do you think about that that balance of compassion versus, you know, we everyone does need a job. How do you think about that, either at the micro or the macro? Yeah, because also, you know, when you think about human potential, sometimes it's on a long time horizon, right? And so, at what point does a does a manager or a leader say, you know, this person is emerging or this person is is not of value to this particular enterprise? 
Right. And right. even to make it even more layered for you. So pick anything you'd want of all this. Mixed <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, we throw well, it in, in, at your feet. It, in many of these cases, it's not a leader or a manager, it's peers. Like you can hide from your boss really easily, but your peers much harder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, let's, let's throw Jim under the bus. Yeah. I was also thinking about hiring like at Coburn Ventures. I've, I've never hired randomly and I've never hired because I thought someone needed a job. Yeah. But at the at the at the macro, like we need a society with people who have jobs. Yeah. Well, so let me answer that question in two ways. And the first is to say, you know, the first example I gave you is one flavor. There are organizations that I think are pursuing these principles and these aims, but it, with a completely different flavor. So let me go from China to um, Sweden. And there's a bank there called Svenska Handelsbanken. It's a 145 year old publicly traded bank. They've got like 12,000 people in 25 countries. And again, same idea, like one layer of management. Every branch is basically its own bank, own P&L. They have totally distributed decision-making authority. Um, they're they're counter uh, contrarian in any way a bank would normally operate and yet their results are amazing. You know, the return on equity is beat out their, their uh, competitive group for 48 years running and on and on. And they also seem to be quite uh, crisis proof. So they're contrarian and are also counter cyclical. So when everybody else is tanking, they're doing well, <laughs> et cetera. Um, now this is a place where no one ever gets fired, where <laughs> everybody does have ownership through kind of a, a really neat uh, sort of pension ownership uh, system that they put together um, and you could say oh it's just cultural you know a Scandinavian versus Chinese culture but I think it's just it's also the nature of the bank and, and their sense is um, they're very communitarian they think a lot about not just the people in the bank but the communities they serve and, and their success is based on this notion that there is a real connection and sense of caring and relationship uh, between that little business which is the branch bank and the community in which it operates and in fact one of the ruling principles is something called the church spire principle. And the notion is you serve everybody you could see from the proverbial church spire, you know, in your, in your village or your town. And that's a really human scale through which to build a business. And yet it's a large global publicly traded business. And, you know, people are looking at it for, for a lot of different reasons. And again, that started um, with a sort of transformational leader, this guy, Jay Valender, who, who basically said, we believe in the innate goodness and integrity and potential of human beings and everything's based on that. And we don't have rules and policies and procedures. They have this one little handbook called Our Way that everybody has on their desk. It's like battered, it's got post-its, it's got you know notes written in it. And they're just sort of like guardrails. They're things like, um, you know, will always make decisions based on what's best for the customer. They might seem like platitudes, but they're like, they're big principles. Or the very last one is, we trust you. <laughs> That's, you know, so the notion is, you know, Radical. you know our values, you know how to act. We equip you, we give you all the information. You have real-time performance data available to you. You can see how you're tracking versus anybody else in the system. So, you know, we equipped you, you, you're grownups, you can make the decision. So that's a very different. And to my mind, you know, I'm as in your parlance, I'm much more probably yin than I am yawn. And so I, I gravitate to that 
personality of an organization probably a little bit more. I think it is more human. It's interesting in that with some of our clients come, we come from a young industry. Mm -hmm. And in this pandemic, some of our clients even who tend to be more yin in our industry than yang relative, there, there's a, it's been revealed that in the culture, there's still a, can I trust people will do their work if I can't see them? And I'm glad it's been revealed because now like something could be done about it, but it was in the culture. And so they're now pressing it. And the way I've kind of shared with them, not to um, rail them or anything is, if you have a real concern that your people aren't gonna be working if they're not in your presence, then you really have a problem with your hiring. <laughs> Why would you possibly let someone in your gates where you thought that maybe they're not going to work? Especially for our clients, they have wonderful ability to attract the best and the brightest and the big hearted and all that. And they've proven through university that they get stuff done even when they're not being watched because you know professors never watch students. They just give assignments, they come back. But that orientation is really deep of maybe I, maybe I can't trust people if I can't see them. And so when I hear that simple last one, we trust you. Yeah. It's like, well, yeah. Why would we let you get through the hiring process? if we didn't trust you. Absolutely. And, and I mean, that's a natural inclination, right? As parents, we, our inclination is to sort of monitor and control our children, even though we know the best thing for their development is to let them go figure it out and experiment and, and, and create their own path in the world, as long as we've equipped them and supported them in the right ways. And, and I'm not, I don't think we want to impose the parental metaphor, but it's, it's the same in that, you know, where most organizations kind of control information and create levels of access in order to control people, I think the new way of thinking about it is how, how do we share more? How do we create a more generous principle where by the more connections we make laterally, the more information we give people so they have data so that they can act, the more tools we give people, the more that they'll be able to be really active contributors uh, to, to the organization's success. And let me give you a couple more examples in some uh, industries that I think you your folks might be thinking about, whether it's manufacturing or healthcare. I mean, a lot of time when we talk about e ESG, we look at these poster children like Patagonia, which I admire as much as you guys do. But, you know, it's a relatively small private company with founders and leaders who are, you know, just progressive to their bones, right? Um, and I think there's a lot to learn from it. But let's, let's look at for instance, one of my favorite um, stories is the story of um, Jack Stack. You know, he's, you guys have probably heard of the great game of business and Springfield Remanufacturing Company. You know, this is a business that Jack Stack bought in 1983. Um, I think if you had invested $1,000, then you'd have 7.3 million now. I mean, it's, it's, it's been a kind of amazing, no, yeah, 83, what is it? If you'd invested... $1,000 in 83, you'd have 7.6 million now. Another trade I just missed, Bryn. <laughs> Tesla and SRC. <laughs> <Apparently>. <laughs> 
<laughs> and all that Bitcoin we forgot to buy. Um, yeah. But the basic, again, the basic thing here was, you know, this was at that, at the point, it was like, you know, 119 guys in a machine shop and Jack went around and was looking at, you know, for instance, one of these, our, our, he, he told me this story. He was looking at, I forget what the guy was doing, but it was a guy who worked on the factory floor, like on a drill press. And he had like, you know, a slot shaped job. He just did the drill press all day, every day. And then Jack found out that in his, uh, his real life, he was an entrepreneur who had started a multi-million dollar business and was an artist and a creator. And that question again of what is this we ask people to bring to work? Why do we create these, these organizations and structures where we just ask for like the littlest slice of you and the least interesting slice of you to come to work and then leave all this great genius outside the doors? So that was sort of one of his questions. And his answer was, well, we got to bring everybody into what he calls this great game of business. And the notion is, nope, in how many organizations is everyone in the organization across every level and every job taught how business works? How many people know how to read a P&L? How many people know how to read a financial statement? How many people know what the strategy is and what the goals are and what the forecasts are and how to you know, work around those? And so he created this system of financial literacy and all kinds of um, uh, involving everyone in planning. This isn't just teaching people how to read a PL, it's actually involving everyone in the organization in generating and following up on strategy. So it, it sort of crosses the whole, the whole gamut. And he, they are now teaching other people how to do this. A big piece of this is ownership, not just metaphorical ownership, but actual ownership. You know, they have stake in the in the game and they have potential upside and also potential downside so there's a sort of entrepreneurial uh, uh piece of it holly just one last question you know if you were to predict you know we're not in the game of predictions but if you were predict to predict um maybe a practice or something that you think in five let's say three to seven years time that we'll look back and say, oh yeah, everybody's doing that. We know that that's what we're supposed to do. That's a key tenet of management, in fact, you know, but really it's something that's just on the edges right now, but you think might actually be able to ride a wave of, of a change in society. Is there anything that you can think of that we might see? Yes, I can think of about 10 things. <laughs> <laughs> you have a top two. Yeah, well, let me come from sort of both sides of the continuum. So from the side that I think is just most basic and problematic, I think table stakes are gonna be that you, you are quite progressive and creative when it comes to basic human needs. I'm talking about living wages. I'm talking about uh, predictable schedules. Um, I'm talking about safety and security. You know you got to have a bathroom break when you work in a warehouse at the very least. So these basic human needs, um, it's just table stakes. So I, I think you will see a lot of progress in that. And we already are seeing some change because there's such a spotlight on it. The other end of the continuum, which I would call sort of higher order needs and human gifts, um, I think we will see organizations that invest a lot more in building the what I would call sort of the creative capacity of everybody inside the organization. So it's one thing to say, 
you know, we want everyone to have a voice. We want everyone to contribute. And most leaders would say that quite easily, just like they used to say people are our most important assets. But you can't ask people to contribute, to play a role, uh, to run experiments like they do at Intuit or Atlassian or even Amazon without equipping them to one, sort of have basic creative habits and skills, two, to understand the business pretty profoundly, three, to know how to generate ideas, launch experiments, develop ideas, you know, take them through all the rounds that actually take you from an idea to maybe making an impact. Uh, so I think we'll see more investment in that. And the wonderful thing is we have, even for huge, large and sort of distributed companies, we have platforms, we have tools, we have a lot more um, uh, sort of leverage with all of the collaborative tools and all of the platforms and all of the connections that we can make across time and space. Uh, so there's really no excuse one, <laughs> not, one. not to do this. One thought that was going through my head, and we, I was working with a client yesterday that I'll, I'll weave in just a half a second, that we have intention, we have exertion, intention to create these great organizations, an intention to unlock, who's against unlocking human potential? Not too many people are against that. We have willingness to exert, but we lack know-how. And without know-how, you get disheartened. Like, um, and I think what you've been doing over the last since I've known you since we met in 1999 in San Diego, is that you've been building up know-how and sharing the know-how. Uh, just like if we wanted to lose weight, we need know-how. If we wanted to build muscle, we need know-how. You're injecting know-how. So as an example, yesterday I was on with a group and the leader is very into everything that you're talking about. What was revealed, the creativity, brainstorming, never really wants to direct people. In the process, he hadn't equipped the people with the pattern recognition that he's developed over 25 years. So he would say things like, go find some disruptive companies. <laughs> and they were like, um, okay. <laughs> and so- Let me Google that. <laughs> yes, let me find that disruptive companies. Instead of like, here's my 10 patterns of, of disruption, so that he would be able to put them in position to go do that thing. Yeah. I mean, autonomy without any training is usually a recipe for disaster. Yeah, and I'd add one more thing to Pip. Not so thanks for thing. adding all this know-how for so many years. So no, without it, you're part <laughs> yeah. of like a community that is dedicated to developing and sharing know-how. It's the models, the methods, the pattern recognition. And as you said, I've been kind of, that's a passion from mine to uncover and share those. But it's also, what do we need to also remove and unlearn? Because when you have a senior person saying to a junior person, hey, go out and figure out the future for me. Um, by the way, that junior person will probably be closer to it and more likely to find it than the senior person. So that's one head start. But there's also all of this these power dynamics, and this is probably in a small collegial, you know, uh, professional services organization versus, you know, a, a large industrial organization. But we have this again and again where, okay, the cue is, okay, we need to ask everybody for their ideas, but nobody thinks about, okay, but what are all of the other messages that we're sending about 
status and level and who gets to play and where those ideas go and what the promises and how what you know all of the pieces of that system so there's a little bit of dismantling or a lot of dismantling that has to go along with this beautiful promised land we're, we're all so, trying to reach so my question is that first interview you did at the beginning of your career with jack welsh can you go back and what would he say what do you sense he would say about all this and I'm thinking about some of the older companies uh, through our change lines, many of them will never get where they need to go. They'll die and they'll be replaced by new companies that have new, blah, blah, blah. but what do you think, what was that interview like, first of all? You know, this is your first interview of anyone, I guess, you know, as a professional journalist and thinker and all that. And what did you in the moment go, oh, this guy is a, a disaster? Or were you in the Jack Welsh aura? Or this is the guy? Or what was all that? Well, like? I have to admit, just let's be fair. I was a 22, three-year-old. He snowed me completely because I didn't have the, the knowledge. <laughs> you know, he said, she is just a x billion dollar corner grocery store and like that was the headline i was like great that's <laughs> awesome um but i will say here's he the piece for you but here's here's what actually did hit me and what i have carried through with me through fast company and through my work at mlab and that is that was i was so struck coming i came from this sort of liberal arts you know uh minute in book publishing fiction writing you know just kind of this world and then i was transported into factory floors and gray conference rooms and powerpoint presentations and um you know these sanitized statements of corporate policy and my my overwhelming sense was how can so many human beings work in such you know deadening and dispiriting and and you know, just kind of soul crushing places. It's not to say there weren't amazing pockets of, of the world, but but so many people had to contend with so much of this dread of corporate life. And I was so struck by that, um, that it's sort of fed my passion. I think that's been a through line that nobody should toil <laughs> in those circumstances. And it's not that all work is super fun and play. I mean, we all have to kind of buckle down and, and serve in different ways but how again do we create not just an organization but an economy that values our basic human gift and and brings forth so much more of that so buckminster fuller has, has this great quote he says we were all born geniuses we just get de-geniused rapidly and that's what happens in our institutions, our schools and our businesses, et cetera. And so my mission is how do we re-genius everybody? How do we re-genius everybody? You know, Polly also added this phrase earlier in the conversation about the edge cases that she looks at and where the basic drive of the humans in the organization is to be more creative, collaborative, and connected. And these attributes, creativity, collaboration, connectivity, are the norm in systems outside of business. They're going on in our culture you know, at rapid pace. And those attributes came up in each one of our previous discussions on the future of work with Elliot Noss, with John Dillon, with Greg Parsons. 
So organizations that can understand and use connectivity, natural collaboration versus hierarchy, and creativity, as Polly said, bringing the best of you to work, could find themselves with a really nice headwind to demonstrate to all of us what effective future work will look like. Thanks for listening.